Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors uh, here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, if you want to open it to Psalm 121, as we just read, that's what we will be in uh, this morning. And as we begin, I want to get the, uh, the kind of creative energy flowing and a little bit of a participatory spirit. So I'm going to take a survey and I want uh, you to participate by a show of hands. So uh, first question, how many of you enjoy karaoke? Karaoke, the Japanese art of lyrical humiliation. Uh, what about uh, how many of you sing in the shower or when doing chores? So either one would work for that. And then uh, last question, how many of you sing in the car? Okay, all right, well, great. Well, I love all of those things and I do all of those things. The problem is I'm not great at any of those things. I am to singing what Rudy Rudiger was to football, all heart and uh, no talent. So my wife has to kind of tolerate my singing all the time. Whenever I'm doing just about anything around the house, I'm singing when I'm doing dishes, when I'm doing laundry, when I'm making up songs for the kids, when we're having family dance party, whatever it might be. I love singing, but I especially love singing on road trips. Typically, my wife will try to take a nap. The kids will uh, either be napping or screaming or something like that. So I'll just tune out by uh, singing songs literally the entire time. And I have a tradition of singing certain songs when I'm in certain places. And so you could probably resonate with that. You could probably actually guess some of the songs that I sing whenever I am passing through certain places. So whenever I'm in Amarillo, anyone want to guess what song I sing? I sing Amarillo by Morning, literally every single time. That's by George Strait, for those of you who don't know uh, 90s country. But every single time, I've never been in Amarillo my entire life without singing that song. Or if I pass through Jackson, Mississippi, what do I sing? Jackson by uh, Johnny Cash. What about when I go through Alabama? Sweet home Alabama, right? Uh, it, I'm not kidding. I literally sing this every time. If I'm going through Baton Rouge, I sing Calling Baton Rouge by uh, Garth Brooks. A lot of country songs, apparently. Uh, now, when I'm driving through California, you think that I'd sing, you know, California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas or California Love or something by the Beach Boys, but I don't. I sing Babylon. Uh, <laughs> no, I sing, should I stay or should I go? Followed by, we got to get out of this place. That's my, that's my thing. But this isn't just a habit that I do on road trips. I do it all over the place. So I've actually done this internationally. Every single trip that I've ever taken to Kenya and Sudan, I love doing ministry over there. Uh, but I, every single time I've sang uh, Toto, Africa. And, uh, and then my couple of times that I've been in Austria, I have just sang Edelweiss or I'm 16 going on 17 or, uh, or something like that. So I've got a problem, right? I have this weird OCD form of uh, karaoke or something like that, like my, my life is a musical. So I mentioned that for two reasons. One, so you could pray for my wife. She's a, a patient woman. And, uh, and then secondly, because that's kind of the imagery that I want you to have as we read this song. Not the imagery of me singing Sound of Music in the Alps, but the imagery of having a connection between certain songs and certain places, uh, because that is kind of the theme that we'll see in this song. If you were an Israelite and you lived outside of Jerusalem, 
um, then nearly every single time you would travel back into Jerusalem for the various feasts or festivals or whatever it might be, this would be one of the songs that you would sing nearly every single time you went back into the city. So there would be that, that uh, memory etched into your mind and that sense of tradition. So let's pray and then we'll dive into the text and see what they would actually uh, sing. First, just uh, give you some space to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning that you wouldn't be distracted by whatever you have going on. And then next, just give you some space to, to pray for uh, us corporately, that as a, as a body, that those around you, whether they're friends or family or strangers or whatever it might be, that the Lord would give us collectively eyes to see and ears to hear. And then lastly, for me, that I would be uh, faithful and, uh, and bold and encouraging, that the Spirit would move through the proclamation of the word. So Father, we're grateful this morning that you have given us good gifts. You're a good Father who gives good gifts, and so you've given us uh, Scripture. You've given us this uh, authoritative, inerrant uh, revelation of your will and your word and your character and all of these things, and you've given us your Spirit who uh, teaches us and helps us and illuminates your text, and you've given us your Son. And, uh, and so we pray that he might be glorified this morning, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Okay, let's begin with the title. We've, told, uh, we've mentioned this before, but these titles are in uh, most of our earliest manuscripts, so we consider them to be a part of the canon uh, of Scripture. And so the title of this psalm, Psalm 121, is A Song of Ascents, all right? What's interesting is every psalm from Psalm 120 all the way through Psalm 134, if you look in your Bible, all of those psalms actually have the same title. Uh, title. These are all called Psalms of ascents or songs of ascents, not scents like aromas, not songs of accents like Cajun or Irish or something like that, but ascents. The Hebrew word that's translated as ascent is from the root word for uh, to go up. Uh, so this means there's some sort of upward movement, some sort of trajectory, some sort of progression that's implied here in this title. But what does that mean? What kind of movement is that? What kind of progression uh, is that? Well, uh, the, uh, the early uh, church father Augustine thought that this just simply referred to the kind of the spiritual ascent that a believer goes through in approaching God, that we ascend to the throne in worship in a spiritual sense. And so he said that's what this psalm is referencing. John Calvin, one of the leading uh, voices of the Reformation, on the other hand, thought that, that uh, this and other uh, uh, psalms of ascent were to be sung in a higher note, like something by the Bee Gees or something like that. But most commentators have said that's not really what this means. Instead, this was referring to a physical ascent, and in particular, of the climb to Jerusalem. Now, even then, there is some uh, disagreement. Some think that these were uh, uh, psalms that were sung in particular on Israel's journey from the Babylonian captivity when Israel was exiled to Babylon, and then as they returned to Jerusalem that they would sing these songs. 
Jewish tradition, on the other hand, thinks that each of these 15 songs uh, correspond to one of the steps of the temple. And so according to Jewish tradition, there are 15 steps up the temple, and so there's 15 songs. And so on each step, you would sing a particular song. On the first step, you'd sing Psalm 120, the next one, Psalm 21, and, uh, and so forth. So there's a whole lot of conjecture about this, but most likely, uh, it's most likely that these were just a collection of psalms that Israelites would sing as they would travel from their individual homes, wherever that might have been, to Jerusalem for the various feasts and festivals of the Jewish calendar. So things like Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or whatever it might be. And so why were they called Songs of Ascent then? Well, the first time that I ever, ever read the New Testament, some of you know I got, I got saved after college. I'd never read the Bible before until I was about uh, 22, 23. And so the first time I'm ever reading the New Testament, I was super confused by a lot of it. In particular, I was confused why it would say that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem from Galilee. That's the preposition that it would use, that he was going up, uh, from, uh, up to Jerusalem from Galilee. And the reason I was so confused is because Jerusalem is actually south of Galilee. So you don't travel up, you go down. But then I realized something and I felt like an idiot. And that is that what I meant by going up is simply cardinal direction. I meant going up as if I'm looking at a map or something like that. But that's not what the text means whenever it says that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem or that the scribes and the Pharisees were going down to Galilee. It's not talking about cardinal directions. It's not talking about looking at it on a map. Instead, it's talking about topography and elevation because Jerusalem is situated on a mountain. Not a tall mountain, but a mountain nonetheless. You see, Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 uh, feet above sea level, 25 feet 2,500 feet above sea level, which is about half a mile or so. And that might not seem all that high if you're from Denver or something like that. But when you consider that the Dead Sea is about 1,500 feet below sea level, you realize there's nearly one mile that between the Dead Sea and, uh, and Jerusalem in terms of elevation. And there's not that much of a distance, uh, difference or distance between the two. And so that is a very steep progression, a steep climb. In fact, even Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. And so to get from 700 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above sea level, again, you have to go up. In fact, no matter which direction you're approaching Jerusalem, you have to go up. You always have to go up. And so as Israelites would go up from their homes, uh, wherever those might have been, to this city, uh, to Jerusalem, and particularly to the temple, they would sing these collections of songs known as the Psalms of Ascent. That's why they're called that, because it's this going up on this journey, this pilgrimage. So let's look at verses one and two to see what they would actually sing. Verses one and two says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. So imagine, if you will, that you're a pilgrim, right? not like a Charlie Brown, Macy's Thanksgiving pilgrim, but an Israelite, and you're living hundreds of years before Christ. And so each year, uh, as a faithful Jew, you would have to make these journeys uh, from your home, wherever that was, Galilee, Dead Sea, Tel Aviv area, Mediterranean, whatever it might have been, you would have to make this journey back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and so as you did, you would sing these particular psalms, these psalms of, uh, of joy and hope and help. And that help was somehow connected to the surrounding hills or the surrounding mountains. The Hebrew word can mean either hill or uh, mountain. And hills and mountains 
play a very significant role in various religions, all right? And so if you go to Japan today, Mount Fuji is a very sacred mountain, or Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, or Mount Olympus was said to be the home of the gods in Greek mythology. And when Israel rebels against Yahweh, where do they build their altars? They build the altars on the high places. So why were mountains so envisioned as being holy? Well, think about it uh, topographically, because that is where the heaven kind of juts up to the earth. And in most religions, that is what religion is about. It's about man reaching up to God, creation reaching up to the creator. And so mountains are seen as sacred in many religions, but in particular in, uh, in Judaism, it isn't mountains in general, just generically, but instead these particular mountains. He's not saying that he looks to any hills in, uh, in general, but instead the hills of Jerusalem. And what's so special about these particular mountains it's not that they're so mountainous, we already mentioned that. If you're thinking of the Himalayas, you're thinking of the Alps, or you're thinking of the Rockies or something like that, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It isn't the sheer size and scope of these mountains that's so impressive, it's what's found on those mountains. You see, given the elevation change, you would see Jerusalem from quite some distance away. So first, you see the hills on the horizon, and then as you get closer, the city begins to take shape. And then as you get even closer, one building stands out amongst all the other buildings. What building is that? What's the temple? That's what you're looking at, all right? So this section of the Psalter is going to allude to or mention the temple a number of times. For instance, in the very next Psalm, the very first verse, Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So the temple is this culmination of your journey from Galilee or whatever it might have been to Jerusalem. And why was the temple so significant? Because it's the dwelling place of God. And by the way, this is what's so distinctive about Israel in the first place, that the God who made heaven and earth, the God who in inhabits eternity, also somehow dwells among Israel. So the temple now is where heaven and earth overlap and where God dwells with his people. So that's what's significant about these hills in particular. When the psalmist says, I, look my, I lift up my eyes to the hills, he doesn't mean any hills in general. He means these hills in particular. And the reason is because these hills in particular have the temple there. That's what's significant about these hills. It isn't that a massive army dwells there. It's not that the mountains are so tall that they're impenetrable or something like that. It's that these hills represent the habitation of the Lord God, of Yahweh. He is the help that the, the psalmist looks to. And so notice what else the psalmist sings. He says, my help comes from Yahweh, from the Lord God. And then notice this reference after that, who made heaven and earth. Now that might just seem like a throwaway line. That might just seem like something that's a, a, a random p a bit of trivia or something like that. But in fact, it's actually massively important. In fact, this language is gonna feature prominently in a number of these Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 124.8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, the exact same phrase. Psalm 134.3, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So why is this so important? The reason is because it points to this fundamental distinction 
that divides absolutely everything in existence. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating over and over and over again because it's kind of a fundamental of the faith. That is the fact that all that exists, everything in existence can fit into one of two categories. All right, those categories are creator and created or creature. Creator and created. Throughout the Bible, there is this hard and fast line that is drawn between these two categories. All things exist in either one or the other category. So for example, hamsters and horses and clouds and rainbows and trees and mountains and angels and even cats fit in the created category. Why did God create cats? I don't know, probably as vessels of wrath or something like that. But that's the creation category, right? Look around you. Literally look around you. Everything that you see fits within that created category, but there is another category, and that category is creator. And what fits in that category? Just one being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. No one or nothing else belongs here. Not angels, not man, not Satan, not anything else. So to worship anything that is in the creation category is idolatry. It's blasphemy. And to fail to worship God, the creator, is the height of folly. It's cosmic rebellion. That's why Romans 1 says that all sin ultimately consists in the worship of creation rather than creator. If you want to know what your fundamental problem is, it's that you tend to worship things in creation rather than creator. God alone is creator, and thus he's sovereign over all of creation, and thus he's worthy of our worship. So it's true, what was true then is true even now. We still look to the hills, although not the physical hills of Jerusalem, but we still look to God, we still look to Yahweh for our help. By the way, this is particularly important given the political situation this week. Some of you might be absolutely devastated. Some of you might be ecstatic. I don't know where you all are, but this passage reminds us our help is found in something, another hill other than Capitol Hill. It's the hill of Calvary. It's Golgotha. That your help, that your hope doesn't ultimately come from someone who has the title of President of the United States, but rather, rather one who has the title of King of the whole world, and not like in the Leo DiCaprio sort of titanic sense. Let's keep going. Look at verses three through four. He, that's Yahweh, the Lord God, will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience of kind of sleeping through something that you shouldn't have slept through. I had a buddy at my uh, previous church who would fall asleep at his desk. He would snore so loudly I could hear him in my office 30 feet away with the door closed. He didn't last long. He got let go. But maybe you've slept through uh, your alarm, maybe you've missed an early flight or you've missed a, a meeting. I think most of us probably can relate to the idea of sleeping through something that you wish that you wouldn't. Well, God can't relate to that because he neither sleeps nor slumbers. Now, this doesn't mean that God just has insomnia. It isn't that he's just up while everyone else is sleeping and that he's reading Harry Potter or watching Netflix or something. What is he doing? He's watching over his people. That's what the word keeps here in verses three and four means. By the way, we'll see that word again in verse five, in verse seven, in verse eight. 
which proves that this word is critical in, uh, in this particular context. Uh, and the English word keeps that you read there in your ESV, you might have another one, uh, word there if uh, you're reading from another translation, but the English word keeps there is actually a bit weak, it's a bit anemic. Uh, the word in Hebrew is actually a bit stronger than that. It means something more like watches over or guards or protects. Don't think of the way that you might watch over your kids if they're playing in the yard with your relatives. Instead, think of the way that you would watch your kids uh, maybe if you're teaching them to shoot for the first time. So they're holding a gun for the first time. And so you're watching them diligently and carefully. You are guarding them. You are protecting them. Or think about this illustration. When I'm playing with my kids in the backyard, as I did uh, yesterday, I'm watching them, but I'm not paying all that close attention. Why not? Because there's a, a fence so I know that there's not real ultimate danger for them. So I might have a book, or I might be on my phone, I might be doing something like that. I might be doing some chore in the backyard, cutting uh, bushes or something like that. Uh, I'm watching them, but at the same time, I'm kind of not watching them. Worst case scenario, they fall over a table, they need stitches, something like that. But now contrast that to the image of me watching them in the front yard. I watch them much more carefully I watch them much more incessantly. Why is that? Because I realize there is a much greater danger. They could be hit by a car or something like that. And this second type of watching is what this word signifies, this protective, this attentive, this unceasing watching is what that word keep uh, signifies here in Psalm 121, that God is not kind of going about these other tasks while taking an occasional glance in your direction. His eyes are fixed on his people. They're unchanging, they're unmoving, they're unresting, if that were even a word. So the fact that God doesn't sleep isn't just some bit of random trivia to impress your friends. The psalmist doesn't mention this as an attribute of God so that you can pass some systematic theology test or something like that. Why does he mention them? He mentions them so that you can rest, so that you can worship, so that you can delight so that you can trust in God. Because without that being true, you can't do those things. Without these truths, you can't trust or rest. And this is true of all the attributes of God. Why is it that we spend so much time talking about theology here? Because at the end of the day, your hope and your delight is dependent upon it. That the attributes of God aren't just something that pastors and theologians need to know, they're something that Christians need to know. For instance, imagine for a second that God isn't omnipresent. Then maybe, just maybe, you find yourself in a place or in a context or a circumstance or a situation in which God isn't present and thus he can't help you. Or if God isn't omniscient, maybe you face a circumstance that he just can't quite figure out or he didn't see happening. Or if he isn't omnipotent, maybe you encounter something that he can't control. It's kind of outside of his sovereignty. And if he slumbers, if he sleeps, you never really know if he'll miss something. If your pain or your suffering or your trial just so happens to coincide with the one time that he's taken a heavenly nap. We've said this a thousand times. We'll say it a thousand times more. Theology is not impractical. It's not dull. It's not dry. Theology is the kindling that we gather around our hearts so that our worship might burn all the more brightly and warmly. Which means that when you neglect this attribute, 
When you neglect any of God's attributes, you not only dishonor God, but you also actually end up robbing yourself of comfort, of joy, of security, of hope. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago and how important it is that you recognize that God doesn't change, that he's immutable, which is good news because otherwise you could never be certain that his love toward you is not gonna change or his grace toward you is not gonna change or a million other blessings aren't gonna change. So this attribute, I don't know what to call it. Wokeness sounds good, that's something else totally different. Maybe we could say, I got that joke from, uh, from Zach actually. Maybe we could say God's inexhaustibility or God's infinite attentiveness or something like that is an anchor for our hope and trust and ultimate rest. In other words, a God who sleeps is no God. A God who sleeps is a God who can't be trusted. That's why Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament, mocks the false prophets of Baal. How? By telling them, maybe your God is just asleep. Yell louder. What good is a God who needs rest? Now you might ask, but doesn't the Bible seem to imply that God sleeps? For example, Psalm 35, 23, awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Or Psalm 20, uh, 44, 23, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. So do those contradict Psalm 121? Psalm 121 says God doesn't sleep. These other Psalms seem to say that he does. And the answer is no. They don't contradict each other. The point of those passages is not saying that God actually sleeps, that that's an actual ontological attribute of God or something like that but rather that he seems to be disinterested, he seems to be dispassionate, he seems to be attentive from the perspective of the psalmist. And that's really important to recognize. It's not giving this actual attribute of God, it's not explaining things from God's actual perspective, it's just simply showing the psalmist's perspective. It's like when you say, where are you, God? In that moment, you're not intending to deny the doctrine of the omnipresence of God. You're simply saying, I don't feel you right now. So the psalmist says, I feel as though you're asleep. I feel as though you don't care. I feel as though you're not watching over me. And yet those feelings are false. As we've mentioned a number of times, most of our feelings are false. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice something else in, uh, in this particular verse. Thus far, we've moved from verses one and two which reference God's sovereignty. We talked about that, that he's maker of heaven and earth. In other words, he's in control of all things. And then now in verses three through four, you're gonna see this shift that's gonna extend through the rest of the passage. And it's gonna shift from creation to God's covenant. From God's universal control over all of creation to his particular covenantal care for his people. And here's what's important for you to recognize. At the end of the day, all of your fear, all of your anxiety is tied to a difficulty in believing that God is both sovereign and loving. One of those things is true. Where you have these deep-seated fears, where you have these deep anxieties, where you have these thoughts of condemnation or despair or depression or whatever it might be, it is because at its very root, you believe either God is not sovereign or God is not loving. You either doubt that God can help or you doubt that he desires to help. Trace your fears, trace your anxieties, trace them back to the root and you will find that deep down you struggle to believe that God is either actually in control or that he actually cares. And yet we see both on display here in Psalm 121. Let's keep moving. 
verses five and six. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your, right, uh, your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Some of you don't know this. Many of you don't know this, but uh, our own Zachary T. Lee is an, an aspiring inventor. He's right up there with Ben Franklin and Henry Ford and Thomas Edison and Orville Wright and so forth. Sometime you should ask him about all of his various inventions, which haven't actually been invented, they just exist in his mind, but they're fascinating nonetheless, and you get an idea of how Zach's mind works, or doesn't work, as the case may be. But uh, things like pump pants. What are pump pants? Well, they're pants, basically, with, that you can inflate so that you don't have to sit down. That's one of his uh, great ideas. Another one is stomach bug bathtub which is just kind of gross, but uh, it's either self-explanatory or not worth explaining. Or my favorite one of his inventions is sun sleeves. He told me about this little moneymaker three to four years ago. Basically, he said he wanted to invent a product that would go on your arms to protect you from the sun. And I said, you mean like sleeves? I mean, just a, you've just invented a shirt, all right? Those have already been invented for a long time. In fact, even the name sun sleeves is a product that already exists. You can Google it. Why do I mention that? Because he made fun of my name last week, and so I'm going to make fun of his inventions. No, the real reason is because this passage describes God as a shade, right? And not a completely unnecessary, redundant one like Zach wants to make, but to really understand the significance of this passage, the significance of this attribute of God as being like a shade, you have to consider the context, in particular, the geographical context. So I'm gonna give you a pop quiz. Where is Israel? The Middle East, right? All right, it's not a trick question or something like that. It's in our hearts, right? No, it's in the, it's in the Middle East, all right? And what's the climate in the Middle East in general? Hot and arid. Much of the area is a literal desert. And in the desert, shade can be the difference, not just between being comfortably cool and uncomfortably warm or something like that. Shade can be the literal difference between life and death. So this passage isn't just talking about God protecting us from a little bit of sunburn. It's talking about heat stroke. It's talking about death. So that's the significance of the sun striking you What about the moon striking you? What does that mean? What does it mean to be moonstruck? That was the title of a horrible share movie in the 80s that I was forced to watch as a kid. But besides that, moonstruck is this term that's derived from a common ancient belief that certain conditions were influenced by the moon. Uh, So the the Greek word for epilepsy is actually derived from the Greek word for moon. Kind of like in our language in in, in English, uh, the word lunatic is related to the word lunar. And all of that is really interesting, the way that moonstruck works and so forth. I don't think that has anything to do with what's actually happening in Psalm 121. Instead, I think the reason that he mentions the moon is to provide an example of a merism. We'll put this word up on the screen so you can see how it's spelled. What's a merism? A merism is a figure of speech in which a pair of contrasting words are used to express totality or completeness. For instance, rather than saying that you searched everywhere, you could say that you searched high and, or you could say you searched every nook and. Now, how did you know that I meant for you to say low and cranny? That's because these are merisms that have entered into our language in kind of an idiomatic fashion. They've become so common that we are familiar with them. 
So if you're addressing a crowd, you could say ladies and gentlemen, all right? That's also a merism. These two terms that describe the totality of human sexuality, though contemporary culture would probably call you a bigot for saying that. But in Psalm 121, we find a number of these merisms. Earlier, we read about heaven and earth. That's a merism. These two terms, heaven and earth, that are not used just to describe heaven and earth, but rather all of existence, right? They're two terms that are used to relate to the whole. And what's the whole? The whole of creation. So when the psalm mentions day and night and sun and moon, and then the next verse going out and coming in, these are all merisms. These two words that are functioning together to signify totality, wholeness, completion, In other words, the author's point is not to say, watch out for the moon. It'll really get you. All right, it'll affect the tides and then you're in trouble. That isn't the point that he's making at all. The point isn't how the moon is going to strike you or anything like that. Uh, Instead, the, the author simply uses this figure of speech to refer to the totality of our days. That God cares for and protects his people, not only in the day, but also in the night. In all that is in between, if there were something in between. In light and in darkness, against any enemy that might threaten God's people, God is always watching and keeping. Let's keep going. Last section, verses seven through eight. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might hear hints in this passage of what's called the Aaronic Blessing Even if you've never read the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with this particular blessing. It's from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So you see that repetition. I think that this passage is actually alluding to this sort of idea here in Psalm 121. Now on the surface, this initially might seem like a bit of an exaggeration or even a lie. What does it mean that the Lord will keep you from all evil. What about the evil of cancer? Is this saying that I won't get cancer or that you won't get cancer or that your loved ones won't get cancer? What about the evil of losing your child? What about murder or rape or a million other evils that afflict the children of God every single day? So what are we to do with this passage? Do we just chalk it up to uh, embellishment, to hyperbole, to an exaggeration? Or do we just simply say, this is just a contradiction, it's not true? Well, no, you don't do that. So what do you do with it? Well, there's really three main options. The first one is really uh, dumb, but I'll tell you anyway. And that is to just read this as a wooden literal promise, right? To, To look at this and to say, God makes this promise to his people that absolutely no evil will affect them. You won't get sick, you won't get shot, You won't have a stroke. You won't get into a car accident. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. There's no rainy days. There's no Mondays to always get you down. It's all sunshine and lollipops. Now, thankfully, with the exception of a few hyper-charismatics, no one really thinks the passage means this because that would contradict so much else that we see in the Bible, like the stories of Joseph and Daniel and John the Baptist and all the apostles and Jesus, all right? They all suffered. And that suffering was a form of evil. So that option is dumb, to read it as this wooden, literal promise that nothing evil whatsoever will ever ever happen to you. Option two is a bit better, but I don't think it's quite uh, good enough. 
Option two says this isn't a promise, but it's, it's more like a proverb. It's generally true. If you're faithful, things generally go well for you. And that does kind of fit some of the things that we see in the Old Testament. Those who are faithful generally do receive good things. For example, most of the patriarchs live rather long, blessed lives. We see that Israel, when she's faithful, she wins her battles against her enemies and so forth. So this isn't as dumb as the first option, but neither is it all that helpful because it doesn't actually provide all that much comfort, which is the point of the passage. If this is just generally true, then it's also sometimes false. And I'm not comforted by the fact that God keeps 99% of his people from evil if I'm in the 1% that isn't. Plus, this also runs into this horrible theology uh, of making God's grace dependent on your faithfulness. That's not only horrible theology, but also horribly discouraging, horribly depressing to make God's faithfulness to you dependent upon your faithfulness to him because anyone who really knows themselves at all knows that you want your hope and you want God's help to be based on anything except for yourself because you're a mess. I'm a mess too, but mostly you, all right? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm even worse than most of you. Uh, so let's consider option three. I think it's a much better option. Option three says this is not a wooden literal promise that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. And it's not just this general proverbial sort of sense in which if you're faithful, then uh, nothing bad will happen to you. Instead, what option three does is it understands the genre in the context of the psalm, it recognizes this isn't like a Pauline theological proposition, but instead it's this poetic prayer or song. So the author is using this kind of uh, exaggerated sort of language to make a strong point that no ultimate, ultimate evil will overcome the children of God. And thus this actually is a promise. It's just not a promise that nothing bad will ever happen. It's not a promise that you won't face suffering, that you won't be confronted by evil, but rather that that evil and that suffering won't ultimately overcome you. So think back to the illustration I gave earlier of watching my kids uh, playing in the backyard versus playing in the front yard. If I'm watching my kids in the backyard, I don't uh, exhaust every resource in my power to protect them from every single danger in the backyard, right? Wasps bruises, cuts, splinters, and so forth. But I would absolutely exhaust every single resource at my disposal to keep them from the dangers of the front yard, from being hit by a car, from being kidnapped, whatever it might be. Likewise, God hasn't promised in this age to keep you from every single danger or every single pain or every single ounce of suffering, but he has promised to keep us from a certain type. That is ultimate suffering ultimate pain, ultimate evil. And that's certainly what we see as we view this through the lens of the New Testament. You look at this passage through the lens of the New Testament in which God promises that there will be a day in which evil itself is judged and will never again touch the people of God. So this is eschatologically true. It's true in this final, ultimate, decisive sense, but only when Christ returns. Until then, the promises that God rules over the day and night and indeed good and evil and that no evil will befall you, now that will actually separate you from God's care and control over your life. And that's really good news for us. 
So what should be our response to this good news? I want you to notice there's no application in the psalm itself. There's no command. Throughout Psalm 121, there's no command. There's no imperative. There's just what's called indicative, just description, just depictions, not of our responsibilities, but rather of God's character and his sovereignty and his goodness and his mercy and his love and his control and all of those sorts of things. But the fact that this doesn't have any explicit applications doesn't mean that we don't apply it. That we just read it and say, well, this is an interesting bit of trivia about God. Instead, there are various implicit applications. In fact, I would say there's, there's myriad, there's nearly infinite applications of the text that are dependent upon us, depending on where we are. So let me give you just three. Three ways that you can apply this. I think we'll put them up on the screen. The first application of this is that we rest. That we have an opportunity to rest because the fact that God doesn't rest means that we can rest. That we have someone who's watching over us. That he's infinitely more powerful and present than we are. When I was a kid, I remember just being able to sleep in the car and now I can't do that. I'm anxious. I was riding uh, back home. It was late at night, like midnight or so, uh, with a buddy one time. We were going from San Antonio back to Dallas. And, uh, and every time I would start to doze off, uh, he would go over the rumble strips. And so I'd wake up and I'd be so alert. I'd look over at him and you could tell he just woke up. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't sleep at all. What, what, I've, what I've noticed though is my kids, when we're in the car and if I go over rumble strips, not because I'm asleep, just because I'm a bad driver apparently, uh, they, don't, they don't wake up. Why not? Because they don't have that association. They trust their dad. And so likewise, the fact that God never sleeps, he never slumbers, he can't, it's not in his nature, means that we should be able to rest all the more freely. So, what, so we rest. What do we rest from? We rest from our fears, from our anxiety, from our sense of control, from attempting to earn his love or protection. We rest. That's the first application. So are you resting? You actually rest in God or are you perpetually anxious, perpetually nervous, perpetually fearful, whatever it might be? And that leads us to the second one. If we're going to rest, then we need to repent. That's the second application. Repent of what? You have to repent of your attempts to earn his love. You have to repent of your sense of control. You're not in control. He who made heaven and earth is in control. He who has purchased you, he who has freed you from sin, he's in control. You're not in control. So you have to repent of your sense of control. You have to repent of assuming that God's love for you is dependent on your love for him. It's not. That God's faithfulness is somehow contingent on your faithfulness. That's blasphemy. That actually dishonors God. That robs him of the nature of grace. That makes grace something other than grace. It makes it merited favor, which isn't grace. So you have to repent. So we rest and we repent. And then lastly, we sing. Remember, this is a psalm. This is a song. We've talked about this a number of times before in our, in our, over the past couple of months as we've studied the psalms. But one of the overarching themes of the book is that God commands his people to sing. Every time you read a psalm, you're reading a song that God intends for his people to sing. 
But why does he command his people to sing? This is one of the questions uh, C.S. Lewis was wrestling with. And he said, as I read the Psalms, I got this, uh, this image of God as being so needy. And then he realized it's not that God is needy, it's that we're needy. We need this. The reason that God commands his people to sing is not because God needs it, but because we do. Because singing is this means of grace that our good father gives us. Why does he give it to us? Because it actually helps fight our fear, our fatigue, our frustration, our lust, our pride, our greed, and a thousand other vices. So we're to sing, not just when we feel like it, because our feelings are wrong, but especially when we don't feel like it. In the moment when you don't feel like singing of God's grace and love and goodness and kindness, that's the moment you most need to sing. We sing so that we remember that we're kept and that we're loved. So let's pray and then we'll turn our attention to communion before we actually do just that. We sing. Father, I thank you for your love and grace and mercy to us. I thank you that you're a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. I thank you that you're a God who made heaven and earth and that you don't simply, uh, you don't simply yield your, or, or wield your uh, sovereignty in a way that is capricious or callous or something, but at the same time, you exercise control over all things. You also have this covenantal care for your people that you love us. And so you're good. And so I pray that you would help us. You would help us to rest in your goodness, in your grace, in your mercy. And you would help us to repent where we don't do that. Where we trust in ourselves, or we trust in politics, or we trust whatever else it might be, Lord. So I'm grateful for an opportunity this morning to do these things. And then also for us to Sing. We love you. We want to love you more. Would you help even as the Father cries out? We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen.